and excited about what the future holds. Amen. Psalms chapter number 84, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. The psalmist says, How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts! My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God. Yea, the sparrow hath found an house, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young, even thine altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are they that dwell in thy house. They will still be praising thee, Selah. Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, in whose heart are the ways of them, who passing through the valley of Baca make it a well. The rain also filleth the pools. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them in Zion appeareth before God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, again, and we just ask you to bless your word tonight. Open hearts in a way that only you can, and do that which would be most needful in our relationship with you. Help us to be surrendered tonight to your word, to the leading of the Holy Spirit, Father. We love you and we thank you for it. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you. I want you to notice the phrase used in verse number 6, where the Bible says, "...who passing through the valley of Baca make it a well." Now, as you read through Psalms 84, you'll find an overwhelming theme that is presented over and over again. We're reminded of the courts, the house, the presence of God. At this time, whenever this would have been uh, written, it would have been at a time when the corporate or religious structure in Jerusalem uh, would have meant that there would have been a temple uh, that would have been in Jerusalem. Uh, the, uh, my little sub-text here says a psalm for the sons of Korah. This is not necessarily uh, attributed to any particular psalmist. But we believe that at this time there would have very likely been the temple would have been standing. That would have been where their public or corporate worship would have taken place. And it would not have been uncommon year after year to find that the great and high feast days Uh, for there to be a group of people making what we call today a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate these feasts. And all through the Old Testament, this was a custom. uh, And in fact, you'll find many times in the Gospels that Christ was making His way to Jerusalem on a feast day. We talked this morning about how that He was the perfect Jew, how He kept and fulfilled all the law. And just as a Jew would, He went and observed. Uh, the feast days, and so it was common in Jewish life to do this. And as I studied this passage, I'm struck by the picture that is presented to us of a pilgrim making his journey to Jerusalem to appear in the presence of God, and that for the purpose of worship. You know, I I looked up the definition of pilgrim, Mr. Webster, not Mr. Weber. I wish his name was Mr. Weber. Our family would probably have some money then, amen. But Mr. Webster defines a pilgrim as a wanderer, a traveler, particularly one that travels to a distance from his own country to visit a holy place or to pay his devotion to the remains of dead saints. In Scripture, one that has only a temporary residence on earth. Could I remind you tonight, church, that you and I, if we've been saved by the grace of God 
Though at one time we were the citizens of earth, though at one time we were the children of Satan and the children of the devil, though at one time all that we knew was what was around us upon this earth, what we could see and touch and feel, that if you've been saved by the grace of God, a change has taken place in you. You're no longer a citizen of this world or of this earth. You're no longer a child of the devil, but you've been born again into a new family. You're a child of God. You've been changed by God's grace. And now you're a new creature in Him. The Bible says in the book of 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11, as he's writing to these people, Peter says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers, and listen to this word, pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. You see, when I read Psalms 84, I don't just see a Jewish pilgrim making his way, maybe at Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, or uh, maybe at the Feast of Tabernacles, or whenever it might have been at the Passover. I don't just see a Jewish man or a Jewish woman making a pilgrimage back to Jerusalem. But I'm reminded what we're told in Hebrews chapter 12, that you and I in this day of grace, uh, the Bible says, but ye are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God. Listen to what it says says, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. You say, what is it, preacher, that you're getting at? I'm saying when I read Psalms 84, I see a picture of you and I. You see, we're on a pilgrimage through this world that we live in. Oh, what was it that the old songwriter said? This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. And the Bible teaches that as our citizenship has changed, uh, we're still headed towards death. But instead of heading towards our greatest fear, now we're just headed home. Amen? We're headed to the place that God is preparing for us. We are headed to this heavenly city to Jerusalem. And so I want us to notice a few things about this passage, and I hope I can help you tonight. How many of you enjoyed this morning? Did you enjoy this morning? I don't know if you're as wore out as I am from this morning, but by the way you're acting, I think you might be, amen? So I'll try to be as quick as you want me to be tonight. I want you to notice as we read this passage that the first thing that the psalmist speaks about uh, down in verse uh, number four, uh, 5 is the Bible speaks of the pilgrim's proper desires. Listen to what it says. Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, and whose heart are the ways of them. Now, as I read that passage, how many of you believe that the Bible you hold is perfect? Do you believe that? I do. I believe it's perfect. I don't believe there's anything wrong with it. I don't believe it has any errors. I believe the King James Bible is not only the inspired, but also the preserved Word of God for the English-speaking people. I believe that it is right. I believe it is righteous. I don't believe it needs anyone to correct it. I think it's exactly what God would have it to be. And so as I read this passage, I'm struck by the word, them. What does it mean when it says, in whose heart are the ways of them? Well, as you go a little bit earlier in the passage, there's two things that could be being spoken of. And I think both of them are true. Notice verse 1 again, how amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts. Look at verse 2. It says, my soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts 
of the Lord. Now, we could preach a whole message tonight on being in the house of God. And I think we all need at times to hear messages on being in the house of God. But in this particular context, I see uh, that when it says the ways of them, it's speaking of the ways of heaven. Or could we maybe say the ways of the kingdom of heaven? Or could we go a step further and say that when it says in whose hearts are the ways of them, it's saying like Paul told us in the book of Colossians, that we're to set our affection on heavenly things. Do you understand that a pilgrim has certain tastes, certain desires, and certain knowledge? You know, I, I, you know I, I'm just going to give you a for instance. My mother and father just came back from a vacation. We were talking uh, in Senior Saints on Friday. They, they just switched up the prodigal son, and uh, they took the older brother into the far country, amen, and they left the younger brother at home. And so they all went on vacation together. And I'm sure some of you, there's been times when you've took a vacation, you've gone somewhere. Uh, let me ask you something. When you're coming back from the beach, what does it feel like when you finally hit that stretch of the interstate that you recognize? You know what I'm talking about? What does it feel like then when you finally get off the interstate and you hit whatever highway you have to get to to your house? Doesn't it mean something to you? What does it feel like when you pull up on your road and you see your house? Can I say there's something special about the pathways that we take as we get home? They're familiar to us. We've often trod them. They're precious to us. And I believe that you and I, as children of God, as citizens of heaven, should have a love and a desire for the things of God. Uh, you know, I worry sometimes. We're raising a generation of young people, and I hope this isn't true about Walridge, but I speak of the church at large and the world at large. We're raising a generation of young people that, that aren't familiar with church. Amen? They don't know what, it, what church is like. There's a problem. Listen to me. There's a problem when uh, people take their young people to church and things get really tight and really thick and people shout and people get emotional and people are in the altar and it scares their young people. That's a problem. Amen? That tells me they're not used to it. A lot of those same young people, they'll take them to some rock concert where somebody that looks like the devil will be up on stage biting the heads off of animals and they'll look at it and, and they'll say, oh, this is so much fun. But then they take them to the house of God and the preacher gets a little loud and all of a sudden their, their children are terrified. They're not used to the ways of the house of God. It's unfamiliar to them. They don't know what it is. They don't understand it. And the sad truth is, I think, and boy, I, you know, I, I wasn't going to preach. Parker's closer than Ralph now, so I'm going to say Parker when I preach. Parker, uh, you know, uh, it, it, I said I wasn't going to preach on going to church, but this is how it's happening, so I'm just going to preach what the Lord's laying on my heart. Uh, you know, as, as I read my past, there's something, there's a problem when we start getting antsy when, when church, and, and we've got wonderful people. How many of y'all say, preacher, you're long-winded? Say amen. amen. Yeah, well, good, I'd rather you be honest, amen. And I, and I, yeah, and I like you too. And that's a good thing. Amen. Uh, not necessarily good that I'm long-winded, but good that our church is comfortable with that. There's a lot of churches around, good churches, churches that love the Lord. But once 12 o'clock starts running around, people start tapping them watches. You see, they didn't really want to be there in the first place. Amen? They didn't want to be there in the first place. They came because it was expected of them. They didn't come to meet with God. I mean, listen, there's been a lot of times you may have gone out and you may have had an appointment and you wanted to meet with somebody. And uh, how patient and how long you stay is usually dependent on how important they are to you. Amen? 
Uh, I, I remember growing up, uh, when it was time to leave the house for church, Dad leave everyone if we wasn't up and ready. Hey, Amen. I don't know what that says about us, but, you know, I think we need to get in the mindset when we come into the house of God, we're here till we meet with Him. Uh, we're here till we meet with Him. Otherwise, we're just playing church. Uh, otherwise, we're just fulfilling an obligation. We're here till we meet with Him. We ought to have a love for the house of God. We have a, ought to have a love for the people of God. Boy, there's nothing. You, you ever been away from home and ran into somebody that was from the same place you were? You ever had that happen? Maybe he was in the military. If you spent any time in the military and you got stationed somewhere far away, first thing you did is you found that boy uh, or you find that woman that uh, came from the closest place to your hometown that you could. And if you found somebody from your hometown, you were just instant buddies, weren't you? And you'd talk about the same landmarks. You'd talk about the same things. You'd tell the same stories back and forth because there's something endearing about people that walk the same path as you do. We ought to have a love for the people of God. You know, I worry sometimes about people that you can't talk to them about the Lord. They look at you and they don't know what you're talking about. I, I just, I mean, I don't know about this, but I, I'm just, I'm, I'm being practical tonight. Is that okay? This morning I preached a, a type of Christ from First uh, Chronicles chapter 11 and probably uh, a type that you'd never even thought of before. But tonight I'm going to be practical. I hope that's okay. But, you know, there, there's something wrong when we talk to someone about the things of God and they look at us like it's an unfamiliar thing. There's a problem when you go to talk to someone about the Word of God or the things of God and they have no interest in talking about it because they don't know anything about it. And when I say there's a problem, I'm talking about people that profess to know the Lord. That's, what I'm, that's who I'm talking about tonight. Amen? That's who I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the lost sinner. I'm not talking about the drunk on the street. I know why they don't know Jesus and we ought to be doing everything we can to win them to Jesus. But I'm talking about the people that say they know God, that have been in church for their whole lives, that have been in Sunday school for their whole lives, and you start talking about the things God has done in your life and you start talking about how sweet He is and how precious He is and all that He's done for you, and they're just looking at you like they have no clue what you're talking about. There's a problem there. We ought to have love for the people of God. I worry about people that spend all their time feuding and fighting. You know, a lot of people have to start their own battles because they're not in the battle. Can I say it again? I hope it sinks in. A lot of people have to start their own battles because they're not in the battle. You say, what is the battle? The weapons of our warfare, the Bible says, are not carnal but mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. Warfare. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. We wrestle not with flesh and blood. We're in a war. We're in a battle. This is a fight. There's a spiritual warfare taking place. And the sooner we get it in our mind that that's so, the better we'll be. I told the camp workers as they were going up, I said, I want you to remember this is a battlefield. This is a war. There's a spiritual warfare taking place. The devil wants to hinder and hurt what we're going to do up at that campground. And I understand that when we walk into this house of God, the devil, hey, listen, we're here, and praise the Lord, and God's here, and the Holy Spirit indwells us, and in a sense Christ is here because we're His body. But understand that the devil would seek to disturb and destroy and discourage what takes place within these walls. This is a warfare this is a battle that we're fighting. And you talk to some people about it and they just look at you like they have no clue. They haven't been fighting the battle. They've just been floating along, doing what felt right at the moment. They've not been fighting the battle. And so a lot of people have to start battles because they're not in the battle. 
And that's these people that you meet that it's just drama from sun up to sundown and all points in between. Always got to be something. Always got to be a problem. Always got to bicker. Always got to fight. If they get in the battle, they wouldn't have time for all those little battles. There's some desires we ought to have. We ought to desire the things of the place that we're going. Maybe you spent some time overseas and, and, uh, when I, and in a foreign land. And when I say a foreign land, I mean basically anything above the Mason-Dixon line is a foreign land. Amen. I still call it the war of northern aggression, okay? <laughs> I mean, I'm hanging on to the money because it's one of these days it's going to be good again. But maybe you've been in a distant place and there was something that you longed for from home. Maybe he was up north. And you know, up north, they don't have, I don't understand it. They don't have sweet tea. They have sugar and they have tea. And for probably somewhere along 2,000 years, people in Appalachia have been putting the two together. Amen? I think the Indians were doing it before we got here. But they just can't understand that when you get above the Mason-Dixon line, that tea and sugar go together. And maybe he was up and you was away from home and you just long for maybe some sweet tea to drink. Maybe you was away from home and you long for the biscuits that Mommy used to make. Maybe you was away from home and you long for the fried chicken that the church would have at dinner on the grounds. And there was something familiar and something precious and something dear, and you had a hunger for a taste of home. Do you understand that you and I, as children of God, we ought to hunger for a taste of heaven? We ought to hunger for that. That ought to be a desire that when we come into the house of God, we ought to come hungry. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. It doesn't say, blessed are those that bicker and complain, for they shall be filled. Funny, you never find a bickerer or a complainer getting filled. It's blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. We come into the house of God. And we just want a taste of home, to hear from heaven, uh, 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 just the breath of the Holy Ghost to move across this place. That's what it ought to be like when we come into the house of God. We ought to have these desires. I could go on, I could go on, I could go on. Some of you got nervous when I said that, but I won't. We see the pilgrims' proper desires. But I want you to notice, secondly, not only the pilgrims' uh, proper desires, but I want you to notice also the pilgrims' providential duty. Look what it says in the next verse. It says, Who passing through the valley of Baca, make it a well. The rain also filleth the pools. This is a fascinating verse to me. As you study the history behind this psalm, you would find that the valley of Baca was a valley that pilgrims would have to pass through on their way to Jerusalem. It's named Baca after a dry, arid desert plant that would grow in this place. And so these pilgrims would have to pass through a treacherous valley. Passing through a valley at this time in history, at this part of the world, was always particularly dangerous because bandits would lay in wait on either side of the hillside and they would seek to ambush you uh, while you were walking through the canyons and the deep uh, craggy rocks and they would try to ambush you and uh, assault you. And so the Bible says of these pilgrims that they would have to pass through this valley where there was no sustenance, where there was no nourishment, no oasis, but it was necessary to go through this. Can I say there's going to be times in your pilgrimage of life that you're going to pass through valleys? The only way that you make a mountain is with two valleys. 
There's no way to live this life without encountering difficulty. You ever gone through a time in your spiritual life and if you, if, you, if you are thinking to yourself, no, I haven't, then either you've not lived it very long or you're lying, one of the two. You ever pass through a dry time in your spiritual life? You'd open this book and you know there's nothing wrong with it, but you'd open it and it was like a closed book to you. You'd read what used to stir your heart, what used to uh, grab hold of your soul, and you'd read it and it'd just be black ink on white page. You go through this dry and difficult spell. Maybe it was a dry time in your prayer life. Let me say this. If you expect, if you expect to get in the glory every time you go into your prayer closet, you're never going to stay in your prayer closet for any length of time. There's times we had the prayer meeting this past Friday. And there's times, let me tell you, that you get in the prayer closet and it's like God just opens up heaven and walks down and sits right beside you. I've had times like that where the praying came easy and the tears flowed freely. And we'd pray and, and, and listen, what, what seemed like minutes was actually hours. But there have been times I've had to fight for every word too. Times I've had to fight the devil away from the prayer closet. Fight distractions away from the prayer closet. Times when you'd pray and pray and pray and you felt like there was uh, three miles of concrete between you and heaven and you had to fight for it. And there's going to be times in your prayer life that you're going to go through dry valleys. Times in your study life you're going to go through dry valleys. Times in your emotional life you're going to go through dry valleys. Heartaches, depressions you don't even understand, but there they are. And you've got to deal with them. But notice what it says about these pilgrims. The Bible says, Who passing through the valley of Baca, says, Make it a well. I wish I had the time to say everything I want to say. But let me just point out a few things about wells. One of them is this. Uh, the components or the potential of a well may be there naturally, but a well never gets there without somebody digging it. Amen? Isn't that true? Let me say that a well can mean life and death to a weary traveler. Let me say that a well is something that one person leaves behind because they know another is coming the same pathway. And the Bible says of these valleys in our life that we can make a well out of those situations. You say, preacher, what does that mean? That means this. You go through these valleys... Use it to help somebody else as they go through theirs. Listen, I, I, I want to read. I don't ever read poetry because I'm bad at it. Amen. But, but I'm going to read this poem. Many of you will know it as soon as I begin to read it. It's titled The Bridge Builder. And it says, An old man going a lone highway Came at the evening cold and gray To a chasm vast and deep and wide Through which was flowing a sullen tide the old man crossed in the twilight dim. The sullen stream had no fears for him. But he turned when safe on the other side and built a bridge to span the tide. Old man, said a fellow pilgrim near, you're wasting strength with building here. Your journey will end with the ending day. And you never again must pass this way. You've crossed the chasm deep and wide. Why build you a bridge at the even tide? The builder lifted his old gray head. Good friend, in the path I have come, he said, there followeth after me today a youth whose feet 
must pass this way. This chasm that has been naught to me, to that fair-haired youth may a pitfall be. He too must cross in the twilight dim. Good friend, I'm building the bridge for him. You say, what's the meaning of that poem? The meaning is this. Everything you go through, there's somebody right behind you about to go through it too. You go through that dry prayer life. Don't come out the other side grumbling and complaining. Thank God for His deliverance. Turn to another person that's struggling along the way and use your valley to become a well to encourage them that though it may be tough now, though they may not understand it now, they may have lost somebody they love, uh, they may be going through a difficulty that they can't explain, they may be facing decisions that they can't discern, but whatever they're going through, oh, what a help it'd be if somebody would turn around, do a little dig, and build a little well, give them a little drink and say, hey, God brought me through it and He's going to bring you through it. The Bible says, and the rain also filleth the pools. You say, what's the difference? Well, the well water comes from underneath and we can bring it. But the rain water comes from above and only God can bring that. In other words, if we'll do our part, God will do His part. If we'll give our lives to encourage others, God will use our lives to encourage others. We see the pilgrim's providential duty. I want you to notice next, we see the pilgrim's progressing determination. Look what it says in the next verse. Verse 7 says, they go from strength to strength. I'm always interested in uh, these passages of Scripture that speak of one thing progressing to another thing or advancing to another thing. The Bible talks about faith to faith, grace to grace, glory to glory. And it talks about strength to strength. In other words, this you don't have to believe this, but I believe it. And when it's your turn to preach, you can preach it how you want to. What do you think it means when it says strength to strength? I think it means from my strength to his strength. You remember what Paul said in Second Corinthians, I believe it's chapter 12, whenever he's faced with a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet him. God allowed this thing in his life. I'd say Paul was a strong fellow, wouldn't you? Spiritually speaking, wouldn't you? Paul was a strong individual spiritually. But he came against an opponent that he could not defeat. This thorn in the flesh. This messenger of Satan to buffet him. And the Bible says that he prayed to God thrice, three times. And he begged God, he said, God, take it away. Let me say that in Paul's mind, it made sense for God to take it away. But there's a lot of times that what makes sense in our minds doesn't make sense in God's mind and vice versa. The Bible says that God wouldn't take it away. But God said this to them, to him. God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Let me make a statement that I hope you really get. As pilgrims, listen, as pilgrims, until our strength is exhausted, His strength cannot be expressed or experienced. Until our strength has been exhausted, His strength cannot be expressed or experienced. I've heard it said before, and I heard it, I heard it just the other day, and, and I know what's meant by this, so don't misunderstand me. I know what's meant by this statement, but I've heard people say before my whole life, people say, the Lord won't put on you, more on you than you can bear. Let me say that that's not, that's not actually entirely accurate. 
The Bible says He won't suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able. In other words, God will never put you in an environment where your only option is to sin. But you know what Paul said about his struggles? The Bible says, and I believe it's 2 Corinthians chapter 1 as he speaks about it. But he talks about the time when they were in Asia. And they were trying to minister. And he says that they were pressed above measure. Literally meaning that God put more on them than what they could bear. And you know what Paul says about that experience? He says that God did that, and they found in themselves the sentence of death. You know what he means when he says that? He's saying if we had continued in our strength, we would have died. Now, you can say that's imagery, you can say that's allegory, you can say that's poetic language, but I don't believe it is. I believe what Paul is saying is if we had kept running... We'd have ran ourselves into the ground because we were doing it in our own strength. But he says we found in in ourselves the sentence of death. Listen to what he says. That we might put our faith in God who is able to raise us from the dead. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying God put so much on us that our strength was gone. We were broken, we were bruised, and we were failing. And God allowed us to be pushed and to be broken in such a way that our strength was gone. And it's then that we realized that God was trying to exhaust our strength so He could begin to use His strength. What what is it that they always say? It's not till you come to the end of yourself that you find the beginning of the power of God. The psalmist said this, He weakened my strength. When your strength is gone, His strength can begin to function. As long as we're depending on our strength, we'll never have His strength. Let me say that again. Oh, I think we need that. God, help us to understand this. Lord, help it to soak in and to sink in. That we can either use His strength or our strength. We can either do this thing our way or His way. We can either do it in our energy or in His energy. And until we stop trying to do it in our energy, we'll never do it in His energy. As long as it's all about our manipulation, about our cunning, our wisdom, our decisions, our will, our ambitions... It'll never be about Him. It'll always be a failure. Why do you think God puts such an emphasis on prayer? Prayer is the ultimate confession of our inability. There's nothing that a lost person misunderstands. Or let me put it this way. There's nothing more mysterious to an unregenerate person than prayer. You'll find prayer to be the very thing that most atheists, agnostics, people that hate God and the things of God will attack prayer more than anything, even more than the Word of God. Do you know why that is? They don't understand it. It's mysterious to them. Can I give you a little little secret? It's mysterious to me too. It's mysterious to me too. I don't understand everything about it. 
but I know I'm commanded to pray. And so when we pray, we're confessing our inability. And listen, when we pray, we're confessing that our understanding and our input and our, uh, our ideas and our influence are unimportant when we pray. Because we don't understand prayer. So when we pray, we're saying, Lord, I'm going to do in faith something that I don't understand. Because how I see things and what I think about them is not important. You've commanded it, so I'm going to be obedient and I'm going to pray. From our strength to His strength. And then finally, I want you to notice the pilgrim's predetermined destination. Now, some of you got nervous when I said that. But listen to what it says. Every one of them appeareth in Zion, or in Zion appeareth before God. Every one of them. Every one of them. It's interesting. Some of you are thinking, probably, preacher, is that saying that everyone that says they're a Christian is a Christian? No, that's not what it's saying. Is that saying that everyone that's trying to live like a Christian is a Christian? No, that's not what it's saying. Is that saying that there's some select group of people whom God has predeterminately chosen and they're going to make it, and those of us, irregardless of our free will choices, that we're not chosen, we're not going to make it? No, that's not what it's saying. What it's saying is this. Those that are pilgrims, because their citizenship has been changed, and because their ancestry or their family life has been changed, in the sense that their citizenship has been changed from this world to heaven, by being translated, as the book of, uh, I believe it's Colossians says, being translated into the kingdom of His dear Son. And our family life or our birth has been changed in that we've been born again and we're no longer the children of the devil. That's what makes a man a pilgrim, isn't it? He's from another place and he's headed home. Those of us that have truly been born again, we have a promise from God that we're going to appear in Zion before Him. When I say Zion, I don't mean uh, physical Israel. Now, I do believe there'll come a time that every one of us will be there. Amen? Uh, people think that... By the way, do you know that, that in the world's eyes, if you're a Bible believer, they think you're a Zionist? Can I say to you that if, if the world's definition of, of a Zionist is someone that believes that the nation of Israel is God's chosen and royal people, and that God has made promises and covenants with them that He has not made to the Gentile world, and that they, uh, God has sent His Son uh, to be their King of kings and Lord of lords, and that God has made a real estate promise with them uh, and given them a piece of land. Do you understand that there ain't a single one of us that owns just even a stitch of land in this old world that we live in? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. But God gave the title deed to Abraham in the book of Genesis. Genesis, uh, if, I, if you say, oh, preacher, uh, you know, uh, is a Zionist someone that believes uh, that one day their king is coming back and that he's going to set up a physical uh, earthly uh, kingdom and reign in power and in glory upon Jerusalem? If that's a Zionist, then call me a Zionist. Yes, I believe in the nation of Israel. But that's not the Zion that I believe you and I are talking about here. 
we're talking about that heavenly position and place before God. You see, there's a reason. And I can't, I mean, let's throw the type out the window. I can't explain everything about it. But let's just say this. Most pilgrims aren't guaranteed they're going to make it. But you and I, we're guaranteed that we're going to make it. Not just because the, the price has been paid, not just because the way has been made, but because we're carried in the hands of an almighty God to that destination. We have a promise. If we put our faith in Jesus Christ, uh, Christ said that the Father, no man shall pluck them out of the Father's hand. Let me make this closing statement to you. I don't know where you're at in your pilgrimage. You may be a young person like me. You may be a, a, a young person and you may feel that you have a lot of years in front of you. Can, can, I, can I say that no matter where you're at in your Christian life, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're promised, you're promised that God will keep you and never leave you and never forsake you. And there's a promise that you'll appear before Him. Maybe you're really, really, really old. Amen. Like Brandon. And you don't know how much time you have left. Can I say that no matter how weary and feeble you may feel, not of the way, but in the way, that God has promised He'll keep you. He's promised He'll not forsake you. He'll not leave you. He'll not cast you off in your old age. The Lord's promised He's going to keep you. You know one of the greatest fears of old age? I've come to realize this not by experience, but by observation, one of the greatest fears of old age is that of dying alone. Being alone. That's why older people crave fellowship so much. They don't want to be alone. Because they see that the people in their life that they've loved and cared for, they're leaving and they don't want to be alone. Can I tell you that if you know Christ as your Savior, you're never alone. You're never alone. He's always with you. He's always walking with you. And He's made you this promise. And listen to me, it's, I've heard people say there's nothing more sure than death and taxes. And I don't buy that because about half the country don't pay taxes. And by God's grace, I hope the Lord comes back and I beat death out of His duty. But can I say more sure than death and taxes, more sure than the sun rising tomorrow, I can promise you, that God will never cast you off if you've put your faith in Him. We see that the pilgrim has a promised destination.